1 to 16. This morning our focus will be upon verse 3. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to cast be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Father, we are so pleased to return this morning to the introduction of the Lord's sermon on your righteousness. The righteousness that is intrinsic to you but by no means true of us. We are so thankful that we can speak of a righteousness this morning, not our own, but yours, and that very brand of righteousness that has been given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us then as we attend to the words of Scripture. Help us then as we attend to the season of the year. Help us then as we respond to the needs of the flock in this hour of worship. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Beatus. That's Latin. Beatus is the Latin word for the human condition of well-being that we usually call being happy. Beatus is the Latin root word that is given to us uh, as long used in association with Matthew 5, 3 to 12, in the title that we have become familiar, the Beatitudes, Beatus and Beatitudes. The English title, uh, as called from that Latin word, 
complements the Greek word that we find here in the text, which is makarios. Dawn, you should know something about that. Uh, makarios translated in our text, blessed. Uh, all of those uh, words, Latin, Greek, and English, refer to a condition of happy bliss. A condition of happy bliss. A condition of happy bliss. King Jesus started his kingdom communication on this day of record, speaking about the conditions of happiness and bliss under God. One nation under God, indivisible. The Lord Jesus spoke to the conditions of happy bliss as one nation under God, individual. individual. That's not a reference to our nation. It's reference to the Jewish nation. No, it's going to take us months of Sundays to work our way through the 109 verses that make up the single longest record uh, of the Lord's precise teaching written down in Scripture. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're just focusing upon the introduction. What we read this morning, 5, 1 to 16, is just the introduction to the Lord's sermon on righteousness, God's righteousness, and the demand of God for righteousness. As we said last week, commonly this section, chapter 5, 6, 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. We prefer to characterize it as Messiah's Manifesto because the communication here so directly is linked to the preaching demand for the Jewish nation. And on that basis, they were called upon to repent even as the Lord offered the earthly kingdom of Hebrew promise and prophecy going right back to chapter 4 and verse 17. Matthew 5, 6, 7 underscore that the Jewish nation must absolutely, in that moment of time, repent, come to God, turn to the Lord. The kingly communication of Matthew 5, 6, 7 communicates the holy disposition of the king come to earth. The kingly communication also sets the expectation for God or of God for his kingdom citizens. One of the reasons that I'm reading in cadence, the blesseds. One of the reasons I'm reading those statements, emphasizing the words they and theirs, as in blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the reasons I'm emphasizing the word they and theirs in the reading is because this sermon is clearly setting forth the brand of righteousness that God himself demands of me and you and all. The sermon not only reveals the disposition of Christ the king, he's righteous but it also sets forth the demand of God for righteousness. The Lord Jesus is without equal, the greatest preacher that ever walked this planet, and we could build a case for the fact that this is the greatest message he ever preached. In modern parlance, we might well expect the Lord to say, after delivering Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Uh, My name is Jesus, and I approve this message. This is the message approved out of heaven. 
And it's a message about the righteousness of God. And it's a message about the righteousness that God demands. Now one more thing this morning, big picture, before we begin to work with verse 3 and the happy condition of poverty. If you were to summarize this communication as a whole in a single word, as you might guess, that word would be righteousness. The king out of heaven is righteous. And the citizens of his kingdom, as promised, are righteous. Thus the demand to repent of sin when offered to the Jewish nation is understandable. But there is indeed a single verse in this sermon, in this communication, that underscores the quality of righteousness that is being demanded. And I want you to see that verse in advance to our study of it in coming weeks. I'm talking about chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees of the first century were known to be fussy over every little minute detail of the law as revealed to Moses. And therefore, they were commonly thought to be righteous men and much more righteous than the average Jewish man. Therefore, when Jesus said to the crowd that the righteousness of which he spake and God demanded, must be greater than that seen in the scribes and the Pharisees, every single hearer of this message was shocked. And many of those dear people were absolutely offended. The overriding truth here is that the righteousness of God demands a righteousness that no sinful person can meet or make. The overriding emphasis of this sermon, five, six, seven in record, is that the righteousness of God demands a righteousness that no sinful man can meet or make. The first words of introduction to this kingdom communication are there. Uh, for seen and indeed better understood in the light of that big picture word righteousness. Verse 3, happy, blissful, blessed in condition are those poor in spirit for theirs, and we might say theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Question, what in this world was Jesus talking about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit? What in this world was Jesus talking about? And the answer is nothing. He was not talking about the things of this world at all. He was talking about the unique elements of a kingdom out of heaven 
prophesied and promised to someday come into dominion on the earth. He was not talking about the system of this world under the sway of the evil one. He is not characterizing the conditions of nations as offered him by Satan and rejected, as you recall, Matthew chapter 4. He is the king of heaven come, and he speaks of his earthly and forever kingdom as promised. The kingdom of the king Jesus does not operate like Delta Airlines Sky Club on the basis of those that have means, on the basis of those that have a ticket to get in. No, Jesus talks about something that is almost completely misunderstood uh, uh, in, uh, in the modern church age in which we live, and that is the blessedness, the happiness, the blissfulness of poverty in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, logically speaking, it is important for us to remember that God is happy. It is important for us to remember that God is blessed and forever blessed. God is eternally content. God is eternally blissful. God is eternally happy. But God is, in keeping with the preaching theme of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, God is wholly happy. God is wholly happy. His happy is purely holy happiness, or righteous happiness. The Lord's first pronouncement is that it is the holy brand of happy, true of God himself, that must be likewise true of those people described as poor in spirit. We may restate the issue uh, in more modern words, saying holy Happy are those that are humble before God. Jesus started out in introduction to his kingdom revelation, his messianic manifesto. He started out with what I do believe is the principle, first and foremost, to be grasped, and that is you can't do it on your own. You have to receive it. You have to be poor in spirit. Now, the first and foremost beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, reminds me that there are two common words in the Greek New Testament that are translated poverty. Uh, The one word refers to an individual with such meager means that they must work hard to eat for another day. The second word means to be so poor and destitute that you must beg others for help. Guess what word Jesus used? Blessed are the beggars. Jesus spoke of the blessedness of begging or a begging spirit, or a begging attitude. Now, I don't like that thought. I don't like the thought of being a beggar. I don't like it at all. Do you? 
And yet, here, poverty of spirit is to be understood as opposite to pride of spirit. The manifesto of Messiah opens with the foundational principle of humility before God as being first and foremost in the kingdom of God as promised. This blessed poverty has nothing to do with the material world all around us. King Jesus did not say to the Jewish crowd before him, blessed is the man without money. Jesus didn't say that. Blessed is the man without physical resources. Jesus never said that. There is no biblical condemnation of having money. There is no biblical condemnation of having some physical resources. King Jesus is speaking of spiritual impoverishment. He's talking about humility before God. The truth here in a single sentence is humble and dependent of attitude towards God is what allows an individual to possess that which money cannot buy, namely the kingdom out of heaven to the Jews and God's kingdom as we think about it in a broader context for ourselves. This concept was by no means new. This idea of poverty of spirit before God, that is not a new statement. That is new, not a new revelation from, from the lips of God when Jesus Christ said that on, uh, on uh, this, this hilltop. The concept uh, uh, that came from his lips certainly sounded in that moment in time both radical and counterintuitive, and yet 1900, or I'm sorry, 900 years prior uh, to this moment of record, uh, King David said, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such that be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34 and verse 18. Both of David's Old Testament expressions, broken and contrite heart, there's two of them, speak of a heart that is destroyed crushed and reduced to dust over the sorrows of sin and death. Last week in my, in my regular scripture reading, I was in Exodus and that great sin of Israel against God when Moses was up in the mountain and they made the golden calf and, uh, and the devotional material that I read in complement to the scripture reading uh, talked about the, that unique moment of time where that Moses comes down from the mountain and, of course, uh, smashes the covenant on the stones written with the finger of God because, indeed, the people had smashed the covenant uh, that they uh, were being given by God. And uh, then Moses did a very interesting thing, and that is he said, Get that golden calf and grind that thing up into little tiny pieces of dust and make the people drink it. And the people put their idol in their cup, and they drank it down so that their idol would go through the wash cycle of the human body and out into the draught. Blessed are those that put the idol of themselves to dust, Blessed are the poor, 
in spirit. 700 years prior to this moment of record, the prophet Isaiah said on God's behalf, to this man, I will look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. God has never regarded the prideful favorably, but has always regarded the humble-hearted. When King Jesus spoke this necessary poverty of spirit in relationship to the promised kingdom come, it was absolutely unexpected and shocking. Why? Because the values of this sinful world deafen the ears and blow the heart to the eternal realities of God. That's exactly why in this season of the year you'll find all kinds of people happy to talk about their church, happy to talk about Christmas, have no thought of Christ in a relational sense. Now I want to plug the proclamation of uh, 5.3, Blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to plug that into uh, the weekly outline that begins today and repeats for eight weeks. You not only know the text next week, you're going to know the outline for next week and then the outline for the next week and then the outline for the next week. I'm using the same outline because I don't, it, it fits and so why fuss over that? So the same outline. The key words of the outline are disposition, demand, and disclosure. The key words of the outline today, next week, the next week, the next week, eight weeks total, disposition, demand, and disclosure. Of the Beatitudes, Beatus, <laughs> of these statements, the first is the first, and the first is foremost. And really, if you don't appropriate number one, there's no sense in getting to sermon number two. But nonetheless, you have here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the first thing we want to say about that has to do with disposition. Uh, this poor in spirit is the disposition of the heavenly king come. This poor in spirit is the disposition of the heavenly king come, first advent. The Lord Jesus was personally and purposefully humble before God the Father and willing to be dependent on God the Holy Spirit in the first advent. King Jesus was poor in spirit. Under the banner of the grace of God, operating in and through the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, we are told of his lowly and gentle disposition of heart. Paul tells the Corinthians that although God the Son was rich, as only God is rich, yet, for the sake of saving, he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8-9. King Jesus is the ultimate blessed man. He is the ultimate 
man of Beatus. He walked not in the counsel of the ungodly. He stood not in the way of sinners. He sat not in the seat of the scornful. His delight was absolutely in the law of God, and in that law he meditated day and night. The Beatitudes reveal the disposition of the king. God the Son became man, first advent, was humble and dependent on the Father and the Spirit. Humble and dependent, or if you will, poor in spirit. Number two, the demand that is placed here upon the royal citizens in God's kingdom is indeed reflected in the words, poor in spirit. Again, the way we've been reading the text. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. The Lord in this message is not primarily speaking of himself, though the disposition of our king is revealed in these words. The Lord is primarily talking about what kind of a person uh, is going to be dwelling within uh, the kingdom of heaven as offered to the Jewish people, kingdom of God, as we might speak about it ourselves in application uh, today. The demand is placed upon the royal citizens for a poverty of spirit based upon God's demand for righteousness. And the kingdom of promise, not only is the king perfectly righteous, but the citizens of that kingdom are perfectly righteous. Since no sinful person can make themselves perfectly righteous as God demands it, the entry-level posture of an individual's heart must be recognized as bankrupt and of necessity begging. Such a poverty of spirit alone ensures the inheritance of the kingdom of promise, the inheritance according to God's own promise, as defined and refined first and foremost on this occasion to the nation Israel, and then in a wonderful way expanded, including us in some way, us all. The disposition of the king revealed the demand placed upon the royal citizens clearly indicated in this particular opening statement. And I simply say to you that next week and the week after that and the week after that, it'll be the same. We will see something of the disposition of the king in every one of the eight statements. We will see something of the righteous demand of God placed upon his citizens in every one of the eight statements, every one. And then, of course, you have in the third element of emphasis the disclosure of eternal value. The recognition of spiritual bankruptcy and the necessity of begging, a begging posture before God, defined the moment of this kingdom offer to Israel 
on the day of record. Only the person seeing themselves as helpless and hopeless apart from God's intervention and gift would inherit the kingdom of prophecy and promise. The righteousness of God's demand is beyond any sinful person's quest or grasp. The righteousness of God's demand is beyond any sinful person's quest or grasp. Likewise, this very same poverty of spirit, apart from God, I should say apart, uh, before God, underscores the truth we preach today, when we speak of being saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is indeed the gift of God. One of the old uh, timers wrote the phrase that has now been oft repeated, especially in the light of uh, the celebration of the Lord's table and uh, in light of an attitude uh, brought, as it were, to life and living and that phrase is, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. During this season of the year, we understand that, that uh, uh, the, the truth of the gospel of Christ is, is characterized as a gift. A gift to be received. And, uh, and uh, that is a, a phenomenal way to look at it. And indeed, those of us that have trusted Christ as our personal Savior know something very personal about that gift of Christ received. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Jesus spoke these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That phrase condemns all thoughts and possibilities of self-righteousness as a valuable thing. It eliminates all thoughts and possibilities of self-righteousness winning the day then or winning the day now. Therefore, the message to Israel was repent for the kingdom was at hand, and our message today is repent and believe the gospel of Christ as the truth of him is unfolded in the scripture as to his person and first advent work. Blessed, blissful, happy, happy, holy are the poor in spirit. Now, does this poverty of spirit mean that you come at all life on earth like Pooh's friend Eeyore? Does poverty of spirit mean all things melancholy? Do some of us that were born Type A, as they say. Are we at great disadvantage to the person who appears to us to be sleepy and lazy and nonproductive? 
Is indeed there a personality advantage concerning the words poor in spirit? Does it mean that indeed you view yourself as a bump on a log or a wart on a frog? I know some Christian people that delight to tell you that there are nobody, there are nothing. Why, I'm just a bump on a log. I'm just a wart on a frog. And they think somehow that we ought to be impressed because of their poverty of spirit. Actually, they have poverty of, of intellect, but uh, uh, I don't know that they have poverty of spirit. In fact, some of the most prideful people I've ever known play that damnable game. And here in western Michigan, it's like the thing. The answer is no. <laughs> Does poverty of spirit mean you come at life on earth like Pooh's friend Eeyore? No. Does it mean that you uh, approach all things melancholy? No. Does it mean that you view yourself as a bump on a log or a wart on a frog? No, no, no. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us today? Poor in spirit means for you that you recognize God is God. And there is none else. Poverty of spirit means that you recognize that God alone is God over all. And there is none else. He has no competition. You are not in his league. Secondly, poverty of spirit means you know God to be holy and righteous and you know yourself not. Poverty of spirit means you know yourself to be not what God is, holy and righteous. Poor in spirit means for you, recognition that God is God and there is none else. It means that you know God to be holy and righteous and yourself as unholy and unrighteous. Three. Poverty in spirit means that you confess that you are unable to make yourself holy and righteous as God demands it, but that you know God can do it and wants to. Poor in spirit means you confess that you are unable to make yourself holy and righteous as God demands it, but that you know God can make you holy and righteous and wants to. And number four, you view God as graciously giving to you his very own unspeakable gift of eternal life in King Jesus, and you simply take it. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the authority, to become the children of God, the sons of God, even to them 
that believe on his name. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The other thing that my mind has been given to during this particular season of the year is the fact is that it is the season of the year. I really don't preach Christmas messages or Easter messages or Fourth of July messages. As you know, I preach every Christmas, every Easter, and every Fourth of July, uh, at least the Sunday near it, uh, throughout the year. Uh, God's word, in my mind, is always appropriate and easily applied regardless of what time it is on the clock or what season of the year it is. But nonetheless, tis the season. And indeed, we declare that the infinite God became infant. The infinite God became infant. Yet today, we must say, Christ is no longer in the cradle. We certainly do believe that the very God who upholds all things by the word of his power was held in the arms of a frail Jewish woman named Mary as a baby. God the Son born. Jesus Christ our Lord. We declare that the infinite God became infant. But Christ is no longer in the cradle. Truly we proclaim that the sinless baby born grew up to become the adult sin bearer for us all. And yet even on this day in which we uh, celebrate the Lord's table, we must say Christ is no longer on Calvary's cross. Without doubt we assert that the giver of all life died in the flesh. But Christ is no longer in the deathly crypt. Not in the cradle, not on the cross, not in the crypt. He's on the chair. Surely God the Son became poor for us. But he is now ascended and seated in and on that heavenly chair. What a tremendous privilege you and I have to be alive on planet Earth with a completed scripture and a Christ on the chair. What a privilege. What a joy. What a blessedness is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is just plain common sense to say. Oh, come, let us adore him. Father, thank you this morning for an opportunity to consider the blessedness of that phrase as it tripped from the lip of our Lord on the hilltop long ago. 
we do understand that the opportunity for the Jewish nation in that day was a little different in time and kind than the opportunity of your people here today. And yet we also do understand that the words of our Savior about the blessedness, the holy happiness of poverty of spirit has to do with our attitude towards you, our God. We try to teach it to our children. And one of the very first songs that they ever sing talks about the fact that you are great and that we are small. Help us then, regardless of age, to bow openly and willingly before the chair of Christ in the throne room of heaven and to give to you our God, Father, Son, and Spirit the honor that is due. May we be a adoring people. May we be a praising people. May we be quick to give you your glory. For indeed we know that you alone are worthy. And we thank you and praise you for the privilege of our understanding by means of thy blessed Holy Spirit's work in the word We bless you, O oh God, for blessing us. And we thank you this morning in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. <laughs>